the airwaves Here is my request You don't have to play it But I hope you'll do your best I've been listening to your show on the radio And you seem like a friend to me Howdy hi, Victoria Stand the man Hello Oh, don't get up, it's only me. Hello, welcome to a brand new year. I'm Liz. I'm Pete. 1420 3XY, how are you? It's nine after six with Lee Simon. It's 18 to six, 3DB with Keith McGowan. More grand old favourites to play for you a little later on. 3 E, the breeze 693. Good morning and welcome to our brand new radio station. Good afternoon, Melbourne. It's seven minutes past three. This is Greg Evans at 1420 3XY. Well, hi and welcome once again to Pilots of the Airwaves, our 30 minutes or so where we catch up with the people behind the voices who were friends to a whole generation. Today's pilot has been described as the godfather of rock in Melbourne, spending a broadcasting career that spans almost 50 years at two of the most influential music stations in his hometown, as well as hosting one of the most popular television programs of its time. So where do we start? More music, more music, 3XY. Hey, Lee Simon, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Paul. Hey, Lee, let's go right back to those North Baldwin days and those teenage years in the late 60s, early 70s. Now, who or what were your influences that drew you towards a most extraordinary career in radio? Well, a love of music was my main interest in it. Um, like everybody uh, as a teenager listening to music on the radio. Uh, so my predominant radio influences was Stan Rowe for Don Lan and Lionel York, and uh, these are all Melbourne radio icons. Uh, and I used to go through a lot of batteries, Paul, as a kid with the transistor radio uh, under the pillow when I went to bed at night, and, of course, it would be as flat as a tack in the morning. Uh, but that was, that was my introduction to it. My interest in radio was more technical than on air, uh, always been a bit of a... Uh, a gadget nerd, I suppose you'd call it. So I was interested in the production side of radio, which is how I actually got my start in radio. Now that start for you, of course, came in Latrobe Street at 3AW. Now how did that come about and what did they have you doing down there? I happened to be in the city for a period of time back then, 1970, whatever it was, one or two. Um, and where I was was around the corner from 3AW Studios. And I used to go for a bit of a walk around at lunchtime just to get out of the ANZ Bank building that I was in and happened to walk past 3AW. There was a sign in the window near the Muzak machines. They had the reel-to-reels that went at the world's slowest speed rolling Muzak out. Sorry, I digress. <laughs> they had a sign in the window uh, that said 3AW Radio School Inquired Within. I inquired within. It was a couple of nights a week, Tuesdays and Thursday nights. And I thought, oh, that's interesting. I'll, I'll give that a shot. It was a 12-week course. As it turned out, after three weeks, some of their panel operators left. And at the end of a particular lesson on a Thursday night, three of us were sort of asked to uh, stay back. And we were asked if we were interested in 
starting a job at 3AW. I said, could I please have a think about it? And they said, no, we need your answer now because if, you, if the answer is yes, you'll start on Monday. You need to start Monday. So I said, yes, and I started on Monday. And that was the somewhat weird way that I got into radio. So, Lee, you eventually took that walk down La Trobe Street and turned left at Spencer and landed in the age building at 3XY. But there were a couple of stops in between. Where did you go on the journey? Uh, I did via 2BE in Bega, then 3DB in Melbourne, and then 7HT in Hobart, and then 2NX in Newcastle, and then 2SM in Sydney, and then 3XY around the corner in Spencer Street. Over a very short period of time, I found myself jumping around the country. 3XY was actually my seventh radio station. And at last, I was back at the station that I wanted to work at. Now, your years at 3XY were some of the most exciting years of the station, but none probably more exciting from a listener's point of view anyway than the month of October. Where'd the concept originate from? And I suppose from a station and jock's point of view, what was involved in preparing for it? I'm not 100% sure what the origins were. What was uh, very popular at the time was scanning the world to see what other radio stations were doing and cherry-picking the good stuff. Whether Rocktober was one of those uh, or not, I don't know. Uh, for me, Rocktober started uh, the previous year when I was working in Sydney uh, at a station that was affiliated with 3XY. Uh, and uh, it emerged. And as a 21-year-old disc jockey, I didn't really care where it came from, just the fact that it was on and it was going to be uh, a lot of fun. And as it turned out, a lot of hard work as well, but really enjoyable. Uh, the concept was to have a month where we just basically larged up. Uh, everything was an enhanced version of what we did. If we ran one special a week, we were running 10 specials a day. If we were presenting bands playing in pubs and clubs around Melbourne uh, every now and then, every night of the week at multiple locations, it was 3XY's Rocktober Presents. Uh, on the air, uh, concerts, we had uh, a lot of the theatre of radio occurring across the month as well. It was a little bit old school in its concept insofar as, uh, and we refer to the theatre of the mind uh, and the fact that radio uh, has the benefit of being able to spark the imagination. And so we created the ultimate rock concert, which was a three-day live rock concert featuring every band you could think of playing at the Ultimate Rock Concert Arena. And there were bands arriving by helicopter on stage one and stage five and interviews and whatever. And the whole thing was a production trick. We just found um, live concert footage and then we simulated interviews with artists, grabbing interviews they had done somewhere else, hijacking their answers, posing our own questions. And it was a fun event. And we actually had lots of people wanting to know where they could find tickets to go to the second and third day of the event. It was fantastic. It was a lot of fun, Paul. So to put all this together, what sort of hours were you guys putting in? We actually, uh, in Sydney, had put bunk beds into our production studios and we actually slept in the building. Similarly, at 3XY, there were many of us who were working ridiculously long hours, 20-hour days, catching a couple of hours sleep, three or four hours sleep, then coming back into work again. We got to the point where towards the end of the month, because a lot of it we produced and then put to air. 
to give it the effect that it had. And we started off with huge 10-inch tapes that ran for an hour that the production guys would bring in several hours in advance. Uh, and we ended up with little five-inch tapes that went for five minutes. Um, and literally, we were lacing up the, the content on the run. Um, and the heart rate was going at 1,000 miles an hour. We were running on raw adrenaline. Uh, it was a highly energised thing, regardless of the fact that we barely got any sleep for the back end of it. Now, what were some of the more ambitious projects that were taken on during October? There was a big campaign. We had October jingles, and we were very keen to get every possible superstar on the planet to sing it. It was uh, similar to Roll Over Beethoven, but, uh, the, the song that other people would remember, but it was Roll Over Rocktober. Uh, and we had everybody from the Bee Gees to Dame Edna Everidge to Slade to every Australian act pouring into the studio, and we were going out to places to get them to record it. Surprisingly, the artists were really keen to get involved. Uh, the Australian artists who were listening to Rocktober as it happened around the country, so, so they were sticking their hand up for it. Um, I remember Frank Thring, the late actor, uh, who was more sort of Shakespearean and larger than life. He uh, got in touch. His family had a connection to 3XY. Uh, 3XY was FT Broadcasters when it began, and FT was Frank Thring. Uh, which was Frank Thring's father. A little bit of trivia on the side. Roll over Rocktober. 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 On 3XY. Love the station. The jingle. No, I think we all love the jingle. Now, Lee, were there any projects that uh, didn't materialise uh, because they were either too big or too ambitious or just too over the top? I can't think of any that that fell over. Um, with each year, we, when the dust settled, would reflect on what happened over the month uh, and work out the things that we thought worked really well and did more of that the following year. But I don't think that there was anything that was going on other than um, a thought that we were trying to put way too much in it uh, and so that we should dial it back a little bit, perhaps, which, of course, never happened. Uh, year after year, we just found other ways of cranking it up even further. Now, Lee, at the height of its popularity, did you guys have a true sense of the impact that uh, Rocktober was having on its audience? Not really, um, or certainly not in my case. There might have been other people who uh, looked at uh, the audience response in a more forensic way. My attitude at the time, and that of many of my contemporaries, was um, we had a job that was a lot of fun. We walked into a studio. We played good music uh, to people who enjoyed listening to it. We enjoyed presenting it. But in my case, I, I, I never thought of a large audience. Um, we had this person, and I, and I guess it was our mentors at that time led us to think this way. We had a person we referred to as the melting pot person. And the melting pot person was an amalgam of every person we thought might be listening by age group, uh, gender, what they did for a living, whether they were uni students or older or laborers or this or that or the other. Uh, 
and it was the community at large, but we singularized it. Um, you would never hear us say things like, hey, everybody out there, here's a... It was as intimate and one-on-one -on -one as we could. There was feedback from people in the years that followed, um, such as yourself bringing up Rocktober after so many years. Um, and people enjoyed it and had fun, if you're talking specifically about Rocktober. In a broader sense, the radio station... Uh, provided what a lot of people refer to as the soundtrack to people's lives. And there are certain songs that trigger off a memory. It might have been the first date or the first, you know, when you started uni or when you started a job or when you were on holiday somewhere with the family and that song reminds me of the summer when I was 16 years old or whatever. So that element of it um, is something that uh, all of us are aware of. So I'm aware of that impact because it had that impact on me as well. So how good was it to eventually get to the 31st of October and know that the, the job was done for another year? Uh, enormous relief, enormous relief. Uh, and there were other things. Rocktober would finish and all of our summer planning would begin. And summers were very important promotionally to radio stations. Uh, the last survey of the year would finish Schools would finish, uni would finish, a lot of people would go on leave, the big summer break, and we saw that as an opportunity to get people uh, involved with the radio station, and of course that was beach concerts and beach parties and beach events. Uh, we also did those at swimming pools. So wherever people congregated in big numbers over the summer holidays, we were actively out there, and often we'd be out on the road. Every day you'd be at a different location doing outside broadcasts and things like that. So you basically move from one event uh, to the next one. October would kick in after summer finished and the next year would begin, um, and we'd start making plans for that. This is Pilots of the Airwaves. This week, it's the legendary Lee Simon we're talking to. And Lee, for you, the big switch came in 1980 when Eon FM was born. As well as an on-air role, you took on the responsibility of a program director. Now, you've worked with some pretty savvy radio administrators in the past. Just wondering if we can run a couple of names past you. Firstly, Dick Hemming. Dick Hemming. God bless Dick Hemming. Uh, worked with Dick at 3XY. He was... The operations manager, I guess, uh, he was a fixer in the building. I, I don't actually know what his exact title was, but if there was a problem, you would go to Dick about it or Dick would come to you and tell you there was a problem and he would work out a way that it would be resolved. Um, and a very funny man, uh, very entertaining. He uh, also wrote a monthly newsletter that was distributed around the radio station, which was hilarious. And uh, fundamentally, Paulie took the piss out of um, all of us. Uh, much loved and a unique character. Can you tell us about Clyde Simpson? Also no longer with us. Clyde, the consummate radio person, uh, his neck of the woods was the sales side. And he was a brilliant salesperson in that he could see where the benefit was for the client, uh, obviously, and what the benefit was to the client. But what made Clyde unique in many senses was he had a massive love for the radio station 
and what he heard coming out of the speakers. Uh, very much engaged uh, and a keen fan of the radio station, as well as an administrator of the radio station. Uh, dearly missed. And unfortunately, another one we've lost as well, the late Stan Rofe. Oh, Stan, um, as I mentioned earlier on, I grew up listening to Stan, Stan the man, Stanley the manly, uh, the man who famously gave Molly his nickname. Um, and uh, in 1975, when I started at 3XY, one of the many things I look forward to uh, above and beyond returning home to Melbourne and working at a radio station, which during the 3AK, 3XY battle that preceded my getting there um, uh, was my favourite station. But Stan was the music director there and I was awestruck uh, to be working in the same building and alongside Stan uh, was a barrel of fun. Uh, there were many things I learned about Stan that I didn't know when I first met him uh, and that made me uh, love him even more. Passionate about music, passionate about uh, draping an arm over the shoulder of every young person who came into into radio, uh, whether it was um, uh, uh, a young journalist uh, uh, and she may have just started in the newsroom or a technician or the new receptionist or whatever. Stan was avuncular. He was a father figure to all of us and we would go to him for counsel and guidance and leadership. So as program director, you carried a lot of responsibility and I assume needed to run a fairly tight ship. So who was the jock who was called into the principal's office most often? Um, hands down, by the length of the Flemington Strait, it would be Molly. For the uh, period of time where Molly appeared on Tuesday and Thursday mornings with Gavin Wood, uh, when Gavin was running the breakfast show, Molly was delightfully high maintenance, unsurprisingly high maintenance. What made Molly great necessitated the high maintenance baggage that came along with it. Uh, and it was fun. It was, it was like a joust. It was a Monty Python sketch in my office, on the phone, wherever it happened to be. Uh, Molly was always a naughty boy and uh, I love him dearly for it. So what do you believe were some of the biggest lessons that you learned during those early administration days at E.ON? That you need to, and I'll use an expression that's been used a lot at the moment, you need to pivot pretty quickly. When E.ON FM first started, the American model of FM radio was our blueprint, was our template. We thought at the time that being an alternative music radio station, in our case, uh, was the way to go. Uh, instead of playing the really popular songs from albums to dig deeper into albums and play uh, perhaps more obscure, not even perhaps more obscure tracks, but tracks that we thought are more, in inverted commas, sophisticated music listener would be interested in hearing. We learned very quickly that that wasn't the case. There's a reason the popular songs are popular. That's because that's what most people want to hear. And in the world of commercial radio, and in fact, in, in any radio where a lot of people are putting in an effort to attract an audience, you need to provide the audience with what the audience is clearly telling you you need. So in the very early days, we uh, perhaps looked too inward uh, in our thinking about what we should be putting on air and realised quickly we should be looking externally more than we were. 
Do you think that the AM music stations were doomed once FM heavyweights uh, worked out their formats and basically got their houses in order? I think they were doomed from the instant that the first FM stations' licences were issued. Uh, and that was six months in our case uh, before we even went to air. AM was doomed. It was, it, it was as clear as uh, the sun rising every morning. Um, AM simply could not compete as a music choice. There was going to be a period of time over which that decay in audience would take place. We knew that was going to be the case. And there was a really valiant effort, and I don't say this in a patronising way, put in by many very talented people still working on AM radio to try and keep that spirit alive. But music on FM in crystal clear quality, in stereo, um, was always going to beat the scratchy, squeaky sound of a mono AM radio station. Now, Lee, what made you think that an exclusively music-based radio format could be successfully broken up on the weekends with football broadcasts? <laughs> the fact that on weekends during the footy season, our audience would disappear. And it wasn't difficult to work out where they went on Friday nights and Saturday afternoons and Sunday afternoons. And we needed to work out a way of plugging that hole. We used to run commercial free weekends on uh, you know, across the football season and presented it as a positive thing. You know, all this weekend, music uninterrupted. The reason we did commercial free was there were no commercials. People didn't want to advertise on the station. Or those, those that did were, were getting the cheaper rates. We were giving away the radio station on weekends during the footy season. Uh, from a traditional point of view, it was unprecedented. No music-based FM radio stations anywhere had embraced sport to the point of actually covering live sport um, prior to that. And it was a bit of an uphill battle, but eventually everybody swung across and thought, well, we almost have nothing to lose. Um, and as it turns out, it was uh, something that worked very well for uh, the radio station at the time, and continues to do so. Okay, now, Lee, I've been handed a brand new FM licence and a very significant budget, I might say, and I've put you in charge of making me a dollar in the Melbourne marketplace. Uh, what would be your pitch to me? Oh, well, straight off the top of my head. Uh, my, my pitch is, before you spend any of your money, do a lot of homework, uh, have a look at the other recent entries into the marketplace, and have a look at what it costs them to do so, how much they've spent since then, and what the return on investment has been. I would suggest that at this particular stage, uh, unless and until our population grows substantially, I'd probably be looking for somewhere else to invest my money. Okay, I'll put that one back in the top drawer. Now, we can't wind up a career chat without touching on Night Moves, which seemed to be a program just simply made for Lee Simon. Did you discover the format or did the format discover you? Like pretty much everything else across my career, just happened to be standing in the right place at the right time. Uh, it was 1977. Good friends with Michael Gadinsky. Uh, he rang one day and said, I've got a meeting at Channel 7 with Gary Fenton. Gary was the program director of Channel 7 Melbourne at that time. 
I'd like you to come along with me. Uh, he wants to talk about something to do with the music television show. So Michael and I drove to Dorcas Street. We had the meeting with Gary Fenton. Also at that meeting was a young guy called Andrew McVitie. Uh, keep in mind at this stage, I would have been 23. Uh, Michael would have been 24. McVitie was maybe 22 or 21, a videotape operator there. And Gary Fenton said, look, here's the thing. We've bought a whole bunch of TV shows from a European provider. Included in the package of shows that we have bought is a whole lot of live concert footage uh, from European concerts that have taken place. All sorts of artists, American artists, English artists, European artists, uh, performing live across Europe. We have this all sitting here. We'd like to do something with it. We've got an X amount of material. Uh, how about we do a show where we feature this content, just say something at the beginning and end of it, and uh, put it to air, see if we can uh, monetize something that's just sitting on the shelf. So we all looked at each other and said, oh, yeah, and threw a few ideas around. At the end, Gary said, okay, well, Michael, you're the executive producer. Lee, you're the host. Andrew, you produce it and put it together. You start next Thursday. And it was another one of these things that just dropped on our respective laps. None of us had done that job before, uh, which was perhaps a part of the appeal. It was meant to run in Melbourne for six weeks, which I think was the period of time that we calculated it would take to use all that material. In the second week, Channel 7 Hobart picked it up. The following week, Channel 7 in Adelaide did then Sydney picked it up, then Brisbane picked it up. And before we got to the end of the six weeks, we had a national show. Um, so obviously the decision was made, well, let's keep going with it. So we kept going with it and we made it up as we went along. Uh, there was no grand master plan, uh, it, a lot of brainstorming and away we went. January, February, March. And so in the honour of rock and roll, it has been proclaimed that the 10th month shall be forever known as Rock October. Hi, this is Marsha Hines, and it's good to have Rocktober back. This week's Pilots of the Airways Rocktober guest is Lee Simon. And Lee, it's now time to go through a dozen or so of our stock standard probing jock questions. First one for you today. Where were you when you heard that John Lennon had died? I was rapidly and breathlessly running into the newsroom at Eon FM, which was in Bank Street in South Melbourne. I was the program director. And somebody from the newsroom had yelled up the corridor for me to come into the newsroom quickly. There's something happening. And we all stood around the teleprinter, which was uh, uh, like a printout machine that came from AAP. And news would appear on that, would just rapidly print out. And we sat there staring at it as a sheet of paper rolled up and across the top of the, uh, the page was flash, 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 exclamation marks for two or three rows. Um, it was beeping. So this only happened when there was an alert. And the words that we didn't want to see appeared on the screen. It's been confirmed that John Lennon, Dakota building, uh, man arrested, shot. Uh, we were in shock and then had to get on with doing our jobs, which was to instantly drop all other music we were playing on air that day, and we just started playing John Lennon songs for the rest of the day. Uh, you mentioned the TV show Night Moves that I was doing. Um, that was on also that week, and so there were 
quick phone calls to work out what we were going to do with that. We didn't have time to be as stunned about it as we ended up being when we could draw breath off the back of that. Now, Lee, you would have been to a zillion concerts over your lifetime, of course. What was the last concert ticket that you actually paid for? I'm embarrassed to say that the last concert tickets I paid for were for John Mayer uh, when he was here at the beginning of last year playing at Rod Laver Arena. It was the first time I had paid for concert tickets in probably 35 years, 40 years, and I ended up giving them away to somebody. I ended up not going to the concert. What would be the concert act that you regret missing? Led Zeppelin playing at Kuyong. And I think the tickets were something like $6 plus booking fee or $8 plus booking fee at a very windy day. And I think I was working, I forget where I was. I, was, I might have been in Newcastle or Sydney. I, I could not get to a Led Zeppelin concert. But I, I'm told it was just an amazing gig. And the band have referred to it as one of their most memorable. Well, Lee, if it's any consolation, yeah, I was at the concert and yeah, it was a brilliant concert. Uh, sorry about that. Okay, the word that you had most trouble with pronouncing on air. <laughs> Rural, R-U-R-A-L, rural. I cannot get my mouth around that. And when I was working in Bega, we had the the daily radio rural roundabout, which was just gossip and news from a and I could not say it. Still can't. Okay, confession time. Was there ever an incident on air that had you thinking you might get those don't come Monday orders? Many. <laughs> um, from really benign things like deliberately not playing the song that I was meant to play because I, there was a song I wanted to play, through to, and I'm very embarrassed and ashamed to say it, uh, a particular Christmas very early in my career where the single guys worked on Christmas Day because the married guys with kids got Christmas Day off. Uh, and I was working in the afternoon and we had a chicken and champagne lunch uh, that the newsroom and myself and the tech that was in the building at the time shared, and I was in no fit state to be on the air. And one of my colleagues heard me and came in and replaced me on the air. And I was expecting something uh, when work resumed the following week, um, but it never happened. Okay, Skyhooks or Sherbet? I actually liked both bands. And that war, I think, was very unfair on Sherbet. Probably Skyhooks is the answer. And the only reason I think Sherbet won that over Skyhooks was because of satin pants as opposed to the music they were making. The Rolling Stones or the Beatles? Beatles. Not even a hesitation there, Lee. Not even for a nanosecond. Rolling Stones are probably... Uh, deserved of the greatest rock and roll band in the world epithet that they have. But uh, Monday to Sunday, 12 months a year, 365 days, uh, 24-7, the Beatles. What would be the most treasured piece of memorabilia that you have from those uh, heady XY Eon days, Lee? There's not a whole lot. Memories uh, more so than physical memorabilia. I've got a few things that... I have tucked away. I regret throwing away bagfuls of T-shirts that I had from that era. Um, but I have the sign that was up in our boardroom when we first started Eon FM, which was made of polystyrene with some sort of bronze finish 
metal thing, and that was 92.3 EON FM. It was probably 12 feet wide, all the individual letters, and I prized those off the wall when we moved buildings. Uh, that's in storage somewhere. And I've got a couple of tea chests full of cassettes and tapes in storage. I have no idea what's on any of them. And no matter how many times I've thought, I've really got to sit down and listen to those things. I still haven't done it. The biggest news story that broke while you were on air? The dismissal. That whole era. And the mid-70s were highly charged politically. That Well, every era is highly charged politically. But for me, none more so than the mid-70s when uh, Goff, uh, first of all, came into power and all the changes that happened as a result of that. And then... Uh, Equally uh, monumental was the dismissal and the consequences of that. And even working at a radio station that was predominantly music-driven, we swung over into news mode on that occasion and uh, gave that a lot of coverage. It resonated very, very strongly with our audience. The one person you would have loved to have interviewed but never got the chance to? John Lennon. Best word of advice from a program manager? Always know how you're going to finish something before you start saying anything. Three albums that you believe are the soundtrack of your teenage years. Sgt. Pepper's, Disraeli Gears by Cream. Uh, I'd say Bridge Over Troubled Water for completely different reasons to why I loved the other two albums that were more rock-driven and guitar-driven. I just love the musicality and the harmonies and the songwriting of Paul Simon in particular. And finally, Lee, if I asked you to describe a perfect Melbourne spring day in two words, what would they be? Uh, <laughs> yes, for the mild. <laughs> oh, what a legacy. <laughs> hey, Lee, thanks for your time today and for reliving some of those great Rocktober, Eon and XY memories. Thanks for joining us. Uh, Pleasure, Paul. Thank you. Lee Simon on Pilots of the Airwaves. And this is the part where apparently I ask you to subscribe or like or comment on the podcast. I'll leave that up to you just as long as you're enjoying them as much as I am. Catch you next time. (laughs) 